There's a whole concept in Vedic philosophy where it says you are not the doer, uh, and which is so opposite from a Western thought, and and that's what predestined is like. You, it's already written. You already are being. You already are that free being. You already are the one you're seeking. So you don't have to worry so much about you know the actions there it's it is kind of already written you can already be at peace now with it all mm-hmm. which doesn't mean you should stop doing everything <laughs> but you can be relieved thinking that you don't have to yeah. keep struggling to figure out what to do welcome to a curious yogi podcast i'm your host bobby and these are my conversations with sadaks satsangis and other spiritual seekers Join us as we discuss and discover what it means to live a spiritual life and walk the yogi's path. Each week you'll gain insights into your own practice as we share the stories and wisdom of those that walk the path with us. I'm so delighted you're here. Now let's get curious. Welcome back to another episode. I'm going to jump right into it because I'm super excited to share this really beautiful and inspiring story and conversation with you. It's my total joy to introduce Chaitna Feinstein to the podcast. She is both a friend and an inspiration as her 45 plus years of living sadhana is definitely something I can learn from and you might be able to learn something too. Originally from Canada, Chaitna has been living in the Himalayas of India since the late 70s. She's been teaching, studying, meditating, and writing about the local life around her. Chaitna has devoted years to the study of Hindi and Sanskrit scripture and literature, as well as Indian philosophy which makes her the perfect author of the acclaimed language text, Let's Learn Hindi, and as well her most recently published book, Predestined. It's the incredible true story of Chaitna's overland journey across Asia to India on the infamous hippie trail in 1977. It's a brilliantly documented account as she shares her journal entries and profound poetry as a young 20-something woman seeking a resolution to her dissatisfaction satisfaction in the world, what she ultimately comes to find. I won't give away too much of the story, but this interview comes to you recorded from Chaitna's home in that same place in India nearly 45 years later. So without saying much more, here's our conversation. Welcome, Chait. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining as one of the first guests on this new podcast adventure. Thank you. It's really wonderful to have you here. I just love and appreciate you. Yeah, I love and appreciate you and I'm so happy to be here. <laughs> yeah, it's great. So let's start um, for the listeners that you know don't know you, perhaps haven't heard of your book. Where does your story begin? Where does your spiritual journey begin? Well, um, my spiritual journey was defined when I got to India and I met a spiritual teacher. But my journey began towards the spirit when I was quite young. Um, I would say even in my teens, because everything I attempted to do when I was young, I got a, I got accepted into a very famous photography school in California from, because of my photography, which was called the Ansel Adams School of Photography. And just as I was supposed to go there and start, I realized 
I didn't want to do that, and I went to Europe instead. And then many, many stories like that where I was supposed to do something that could have made me a very important or very accomplished person in the world. Important, no, but an accomplished person in the world. And then just as I would be ready to do it, I would think, no, no, it can't be that. (laughs) So the journey started very young, but it didn't have a shape. It didn't have a spiritual aspect to it. It didn't have a direction until I was in Israel in 1977, and I had a near-death experience where I almost drowned. And just before I lost consciousness and thought that this was the end of my mortal life, I saw this incredible light and an incredible euphoria just flooded my being. And I just wanted to release myself to that because I realized it was my own true nature. But I didn't drown because some valiant soul, my friend Rob, he saved me. (laughs) And uh, I was sort of disappointed (laughs) when he saved me because that light was so much more attractive than the darkness of being a human being sometimes. And um, I got up the next morning and I, I announced to him that I have to go to India which was completely out of the blue. We were not going to India. We were not had no plans to travel at all. But I knew somewhere that my journey, my the answer to this question was my journey. And that answer was only going to be found in India. And don't ask me how I knew that. It was I was just like 19. I had no clue. I don't think I'd even heard of India much before that. But I just somehow knew in the d- deepest core of my being that I had to go to India and figure out what was that state I reached. Was it possible for a human being to reach that without dying? Was it possible for a human being to reach that without drugs, without alcohol, without any help? I I knew it was possible because I felt it within. Mm -hmm. And so that, that was the start of my journey. It just started in the direction of India because... And I didn't know that India at the time was the land of yoga because it was it was long ago before internet and and cell phones and I, I actually had never even heard of yoga or meditation. I just knew of my own little life in my little suburb of Montreal. So, but there was this pull that India would have the answer. Mm-hmm. Wow! So that sort of that inherent that curiosity we were speaking about before, that pull, there was something that was already there and then that near-death experience sort of illuminated it even Absolutely. more, magnified it. Absolutely. And interesting that you call this the curious yogi because I think a person who is going to start any kind of spiritual path or any kind of um, path at all, any sadhana, has to have curiosity. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, they also have to have a little bit of disillusionment. They have to know that whatever has been handed to them on a plate, which is called life, it's not just that. There has to be something more. And that curiosity will lead you onwards mm-hmm. and will push push you to the next mm-hmm. thing, to finding out something else. In, in Hindi, it's called jigyasu. And it means an expansion of knowledge. So that curiosity, is, it's already inherent in a human being. He has knowledge. He comes from a field of knowledge, but he has to have more. He wants to have more knowledge. There is more knowledge available. I want to reach it. Mm-hmm. He needs that curiosity. 
to keep going. Do you think that curiosity is something that can be learned or is it, you know, it's just there, it's just within the being already? No, I think it's always within the being, but it's not awakened. Mm -hmm. I think certain experiences in your life awaken it, like a near-death experience or perhaps a, a breakup in a relationship or a death in the family, a loss of a mother, something that somehow just makes you wake up to the fact that, oh, Life as I thought it was before may not be that all the time. And it can happen through an experience, and some people are born with it. Some people are just not satisfied with just being, and, and they won't accept that they're just this small human being with a small little life, and they want to know more. Mm-hmm. So I think any way it comes, I think the curiosity is always there because it's, it's what will lead you up the ladder to your, your own ladder, to your own heaven. But you have to get on the ladder. <laughs> right. Well, I love the visualization of Chaitna as a young 19-year-old, small girl as if with fiery red hair and having this big curiosity inside of you. So when you had that experience and you announced to your friend Rob and to your family in Israel, I'm going to India, what, what were you met with? What was the response? Well... Rob didn't want to take me to India. Well, he was shocked. He said, what? What? What is India? Where did you get India from? <laughs> we were supposed to go to the Sinai, and then we were already in the, in the Negev Desert, and we were going to go to the Sinai, and then go to Egypt, and then just trip around and just do what, you know, teenagers and young adults do. So he goes, well, what, what's going on here? So I said, I don't know. I really can't explain it to you, and I don't expect you to come with me, but I have to go. And it was such a strong sense, like, I have to go. And uh, my family was in Canada, so I didn't really have to explain it to them. <laughs> but um, but Rob said, well, I'm not going with you. I'm, I'm staying here because I'm really happy here. We were living in a kibbutz, and we were very happy where we were. So he didn't want to disturb that. He wanted to stay. And I said, no, you don't have to take me. I'll go. And he said, well, you don't really have enough money, which I didn't. I had, you know, in those days, $800, which was enough to take you to India in those days, but nowadays not. And um, so we had planned that I would go and he would stay, and that's how it was going to be. But at the very last minute, he's such a noble soul, this guy, he said, um, I can't let you go through all those Muslim countries by yourself. It's not, uh, my hair was actually more blonde in those days and very long. And he said, I can't let a long blonde haired woman (laughs) go through Turkey, Afghanistan, Iran, (laughs) and Pakistan by herself. I wouldn't sleep at night. So he came with me. Wow. Yeah. And that's kind of the jumping off point of the book where you start in those first pages. Yeah. And before you started the venture to India or when you were on that adventure, if you want to call it, or journey, did you have a spiritual practice? Like your family is from the Jewish faith. Were you ever, did you connect with any other no. faiths? Or no, no, not where? at all. I actually didn't even know what the word meditation meant. Mm-hmm. I had no religious upbringing. I mean, my family had been through the concentration camps, my grandparents and stuff. So there was the the heaviness of of the Jewish culture was always put on me, but not so much the religious aspect of it. Mm -hmm. And uh, I didn't like the heaviness of it either. I mean, I felt for all my relatives and all the relatives I lost and everything, but I didn't want to take it on. 
um, I only went to Israel because, you know, my grandparents were there and I loved them so much. And I, I loved being in a, in a kibbutz because um, it was like a, a, it was like they were building a country from the ground up with young people. And I, you know, I was idealistic. I thought, that's a great thing. You know, they don't pay you any money. You're just working for food and for shelter. But people from all over the world were there, and they were just helping to develop Israel in those days. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, no, I had no religious feelings at all. I had more disillusionment. I don't know if that could be uh, considered part of religion, but I was... I would often get disillusioned with life. Like, I would get disillusioned with people who get angry all the time. I would get disillusioned with people who were greedy. I would get disillusioned by people who were cruel to animals. I would read the newspaper about, you know, elephants getting their tusks removed just for the ivory, and I would get disillusioned, and that would make me very sad. Mm -hmm. So I had a... I was looking for a solution to get out of how disillusioning the world was. <laughs> You know, that relationships didn't last and people got divorced and there wasn't a happily ever after and you're going to get married and forever be in love. People broke up. And, you know, and as a young person, I took that very, very um, hard. Mm -hmm. I found it difficult to deal with. Mm -hmm. yeah, especially because, like, the disillusionment itself is difficult, it's challenging. And if there's nothing on the other side yeah. of the disillusionment to say, okay, that made you dissatisfied and that made you question, but then to have no answer. No answers. And there are no answers. <laughs> yeah. Like when you ask somebody, where did the love go? And they go, well, it's just gone. Or a little, one of my nephews said to his mom at a, at a, at a dinner, he said, mom, where's God? And she said, in the sky. And everyone looked up and I thought, no, he's not in the sky. <laughs> he or she is not in the sky. That is not an answer. And he was so disappointed. Yeah. So, yeah, there were no I never got answers. I had a lot of questions and I had a lot of disillusionment about the world, but I never got answers. And I looked. I did look a little bit in religion. I read, um, I read the parts of the Quran. I read people who had written about the Quran. I read parts of Judaism, people who had written the, in the Kabbalah. I had read, I didn't, I didn't find much in Christianity, just a lot of rules and stories. Mm -hmm. So I did read it when I was a teenager, but um, I never found anything mm -hmm. in scriptures like those. Mm -hmm. And I never knew about Hinduism. I never knew about Vedant uh, until I reached India. So I didn't even have that you know, or Buddhism even, because mm -hmm. I lived in a very small suburb of Montreal. It was quite, um, well, I don't want to say ignorant, but it was very close-minded. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that sort of grand disillusionment that you felt, you, the questioning, is, is that the drive, like the pull that was behind all that you had to go through to go across into India? Now, like, you know, so many young people think, I want to go to India and find a teacher or do a yoga training or find more. We just jump on a plane and yeah. we're here, you know. But in those days, yeah. to do that hippie trail, to go overland, it's so unbelievable, like, to think of how hard that was on your physical body, on your mental. Yeah. So you had, like, that rock of that burning desire for the yeah. answer to pull you through. Can you... Give any examples or times when you really had to go through 
big challenges, both physically or mentally. I know you write about it in the book, but maybe you can yeah, share. Yeah, well, everyone's going to read the book. Yeah, well, they should, because it's really good. I couldn't put it down. I was like, so loved it. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, well, traveling in 1977 is not like traveling now. There was no internet. There was no information. There was no, I mean, there was maps, a paper maps. That was it. And it was all word of mouth. So when we started, um, we were very enthusiastic. Like it sounded like such a fairy, fairy tale. Like, yeah, we're going to go to, <laughs> we're going to go to India and, you know, it's going to be amazing. And, and then, um, you know, all along the way, um, it was it was starting to get hot and it was summer and the buses were long and broken down and we had very little money so we were staying in very cheap dirty run down hotels trying to save money wherever we could and and it was strenuous extremely strenuous and then um and also really great like we found some really beautiful people we met beautiful people in Turkey, for example, and and uh, very kind and generous people in Turkey, and then Iran was was difficult. It was also a politically very charged time in Iran because the Shah of Iran was at the time was about to be uh, deposed by Khomeini, so it, people were emotional, and and it was a difficult time. And then Afghanistan, which was just unbelievably enchanting and charming, and and magical and but I got so sick in Afghanistan because we Rob and I decided that we wanted to go there was on the hippie trail there was a lot of um, people like us who were had very little money but they also got into drugs a lot and I wasn't so much into drugs I mean I had to because sometimes you just have to but it wasn't my path and so um I, I was getting disillusioned again by the level of people I was meeting on the hippie trail. Very few authentic people who were looking for something more in life. They were just looking, mostly they were looking for a high and a good time. So Rob and I decided to sort of take a break off the hippie trail. And instead of going from Herat down to Kandahar and then to Kabul, we decided to go on the less traveled um, upper path, other, upper uh, road in Afghanistan, which you could only access through supply vehicles. And we had to get a special police permit for that. And I'll never forget the superintendent of police looking at us incredulously, asking us, why do you want to go up there? And he says, no, no, all the foreigners, they go to, you know, Kandahar and Kabul, they go that way, much more comfortable. And we said, no, no, we really want to do this. So he said, okay, <laughs> go for it. But not in those words. And um, so we went on these supply trucks that just about killed us. I mean, it was the roughest experience I could ever have imagined. And then I got very sick. And again, I almost died. <laughs> but this time it was from dysentery. I just got so weak and so um, sick. And there was nothing, there was nowhere for me to get medicine and there was no one to help me. We were really in a very, very remote part of Afghanistan that had no electricity it had no um, stores. It had no, it, even it was Ramadan, so there was like fasting all day long and nobody spoke English and I was just wasting away. And luckily for me, there was one teacher in the school that realized that I was not going to make it. So he took the supply train back to Herat and he 
or he told the su the supply truck that was going back to Herat to go to the pharmacy there, tell them my situation, and send something. And the supply truck did that, and when it came back, it brought antibiotics, and they gave he gave them to me, and I I, I survived. <laughs> but again, I thought I've got to get to India. Mm -hmm. I've got to figure out what is life before body. Because when I was really sick, I again had that out-of-body experience where I realized, look, my body is broken, completely broken, and it's so weak I couldn't even move it. But I'm still there. I could feel the presence of being that had nothing to do with body. And I wanted to know, well, how do I, how do I reach that without having to do these horrible things and go through these experiences where I almost die? But both of them gave me that very strong feeling that there is something before body. There is something that doesn't feel pain. There is something that will not die. There is something that's only light and love. I need to be able to reach that and access that and hold that. And that answers in India. Wow, it's so amazing and rare that because most people go, oh, I'm, you know, maybe not most people, but a lot of people go through physically trying times and for a lot of people I can imagine in your situation we think I'm turning back I'm getting on a plane I'm finding the money I'm going back to Canada where I'm safe I probably should have done that but there was something <laughs> in you that said no no like I'm gonna keep going yeah well it was the it was the power of the experience of that mm -hmm. and and I realized that a lot of people who do get sick like Rob got sick at one point he did not have that experience. He wanted to turn back. But I think it's a kind of a grace, you know, when you're supposed to find out who you are. Everything opens for you, it, not the way you want it or you think or the way you think it should be, but things open for you so that you can move towards that and find that knowledge and find that experience and the answers to all your questions. So you made a recovery in Iran, and then... No, this was in oh, Afghanistan. Sorry, in Afghanistan, yeah. right, which you did love. I loved Afghanistan. Yeah. It was so beautiful. It saddens me so much to see what ha what is happening, because I was there before the days of the Taliban and, mm -hmm. you know, all that, the other things that have happened. In fact, Russia was just about... To, the Russian troops were just entering in Afghanistan when I was leaving, and I was, I had a very sad moment thinking... I'll never be able to come, because I really wanted to come back to Afghanistan at another time. But when I saw the Russians coming in, I thought, I'll never be able to come back to Afghanistan. This is it. What a rare and unbelievable kind of moment in time that you had. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I feel very graced by that experience. Yeah, yeah so Pakistan, it didn't, it, we left, we just went right through it. Mm -hmm. And we had a very tough time leaving Pakistan because we couldn't find any place to sleep and nobody was allowing us to have real beds. They would just allow us to sleep on the cement. and Because we, by then we were pretty, you know, tired and I wouldn't say we were dirty. We always tried to bathe, but we, you know, we were, we were road weary. We had been on the road for many months. And um, so we get, we went right through and we arrived in Amritsar. And as soon as I walked into Indian, onto the Indian soil, and I saw the hands of this big poster with two hands folded saying, Namaskar, Mother India welcomes you. I just burst into tears and I went, I'm home. I made it. <laughs> Which is 
incredible now 45 years later yeah this is your home this you is my home. home yeah so you had that sense from the first moment yeah that this is you know your your spiritual home your true home yeah yeah this is where i was going to find all my answers mm-hmm. i knew it mm-hmm. a big part of me just like my whole being sighed like mm-hmm. it's over mm-hmm. i don't know what's going to happen now but the the journey is, the hard journey is over, and now I can start the real journey. Mm-hmm. So you make it to India. This is where the second part of the book really begins, and sort of the beginning of your life as, you know, your new life yeah. has changed so much because you had a meeting with a very special being. So do you want to touch on that? How yeah. You... Well, we were coming up from Chandigarh, which is in the Punjab, and the road up to Kula had not yet been paved. This is a long time ago. So it was a pretty much a dirt road all the way up. So now it takes about, what, six hours to get up from Chandigarh? In that, at that time, we were on our 11th hour of bumping up and down in a horribly miserable bus with just a wooden seat. And I was so sore, and I was so tired. And I looked out the window we reached Kulu, and I looked out the window, and I saw a hotel. And I thought, Rob, we were heading to Manali because that was on the hippie trail. You would go from, from um, most of the hippies would go to Kashmir, but we couldn't go to Kashmir because there was fight, fighting had broken out. So we were advised to go to Manali, which is the next valley over. So mostly everyone goes to Manali and doesn't stop in Kulu because it's not a tourist destination. It's not a hippie destination. There's no drugs available here. <laughs> so, but I looked out the window and I saw a hotel and I said, Rob, can we just get out here and then we'll try to go to Manali in the morning. So he also was all beaten up from the bus ride. We got out and we went into the hotel and we checked in. And the next morning, this is where the story really takes an incredible turn. The next morning, we're walking down the street, and I see a guy that I went to high school with in Montreal like six years ago, whenever that was. And he's just walking up the road. And so I I quickly go up to him, and he says, the first thing he said to me was, you don't know me. And I thought, well, that's a very strange thing to say from to a person that you you knew as a child in high school so he didn't answer he didn't say anything about why he was there or nothing but again it spiked it, it it touched my curiosity what is sandy doing all the way up here in the middle of nowhere and he was wearing all white clothes and he looked really great and um so i said to rob let's just stay a day or two i'm sort of interested to know what what is this guy doing here and then we found out that there was many, several people. There was about eight people here, and they were all from Montreal. And three of them were from the high school I went to. And they were all in this area, all around the hotel that we were staying in. So then I thought, no, I got I to gotta figure this out. <laughs> what are these people doing here? And they all looked amazing. They looked like the happiest people I had seen in a long time. They were all dressed in beautiful clothes, velvet and whites and blue, smiling and singing and just radiant. And I thought, I got I to gotta find out what's going on. <laughs> So that's how we stayed. Otherwise, we were just getting up in the morning and going to to uh, Manali. So I know I had the sense when I met a, my spiritual community of just seeing these people and just 
what do they have? They so these people have the answers that I'm looking for. Just that inner knowing that yeah. that connection. So it sounds like that's what you felt yeah. when you met those few people. Yeah, because most people you meet are somewhat happy or content yeah. or satisfied, and they just look fairly normal. But they don't have a radiant happiness and bright, bright eyes and and mm-hmm. big smiles and mm-hmm. and they don't emit love and light. Mm-hmm. The average person. Mm-hmm. So the next day off, you and you and Rob went off inquiring, looking for the. Yeah, well, we started asking everybody, yeah. and then I just got so blown out that, you know, there was this guy here who I went to school with. My brother was in the same grade as my brother, and knew my brother, and then I met. Another, so, and that's why I wrote the book and called it Predestined because it was just too, it was just too bizarre that I would end up in a community in India that I wasn't intending to go to, where all the people I knew from Montreal, all the people here were people I had known in Montreal. Even few I didn't, but the majority I did. Yeah, that's like you can't call that a chancing. Yeah, you, it, yeah, <laughs> that's a bit like that, that, that's life giving you some strong signs. Yeah, yeah, to feel safe, also like okay, you know, you feel familiar. Did you have that sense of familiarity? I didn't. I didn't have a sense of feeling safe. I had a sense of I was over. That my journey was over. I I reached. This is that I had to go no further. I wanted to be here. Mm-hmm. I knew for sure that what these people had, I wanted it, and I was going to get it. And then I heard that they had a teacher. And all along the way when I was traveling, I was toying with the idea of, I think I need to find a teacher. Doesn't have to, I didn't know what religion he would be or if he would be Hindu or Buddhist. Or By now I had heard about Buddhism and I'd heard about Hinduism and Jainism and various other things. And, um, and they, these people all had a teacher, and a local, an Indian man. And, and I thought, well, I have to meet the teacher, but nobody was keen on introducing me to him. <laughs> and that also made me think, okay, what is really going on here? <laughs> so it wasn't until I was here, I think maybe 10 days or so, that um, finally Swamiji called for me because I had had a discussion with one of his, one of the people who was with him, and I was asking her some very difficult questions. And she didn't have the answers. And I got somewhat feisty with her, like saying, how could you call this man God? If How can he say he's God if you're not God? Like, if one man is God, then all men must be God. And she, she kind of wait, she kind of buckled under my, all my questions. I was way too feisty. And she told Swamiji about it. And he said, well, I, I think I better meet her. <laughs> and so he called for me and Rob. And... Um, one of the very first things Swamiji said to me was, you can stop fighting now, you made it. So, <laughs> Which kind of puts the pin on, sounds like your whole journey, because you really had to, the sense of fighting, that like, just keep going, keep going, like, yeah. struggling against to find something. And then what was that experience to meet your teacher and to just have that release that you don't have to fight anymore? Well, you hit it on the nail, release. Yeah. Yeah, that sense. Like when you're always having to to fight and to, to struggle and to... I mean, I, I'm making it sound like my life was all struggle, which it wasn't. Because I'm innately happy by nature. I, I, I don't really suffer. But I question. There's a big difference between suffering and questioning. 
so when I when I met Swami, well, you know, I can't remember fully everything. I just knew that I had known him before. It was such a sense of like, oh yeah, okay, yeah, I know that space. I know who this man is, but not physically because I'd never met him before. But that sense of familiarity that I've always known him and he's always known me and he recognized me because a lot of the times when I was traveling I felt like I would be with people but nobody ever saw me I would feel so lonesome sometimes in a, in a room full of people that nobody would ever see me or, or, or know what I wanted to talk about or or express anything I was interested in and, and then suddenly in front of Swami I felt like I was seen completely seen and completely loved and it was so overwhelming to be seen and loved for the first time, really. Because it wasn't a human love. It wasn't the kind of love I had between me and Rob, which was very based on human. This was the, a divine love, and I knew it. It was a divine love. So you had that experience, like a deep experience, and then you just, what was the next step to begin learning and studying and begin your sadhana journey yes and i didn't know what sadhana was i didn't even know what the word was i didn't even know what meditation was the very first the second time we met swamiji he called for a meditation and all the people in the room closed their eyes and i thought well this is so rude i've come to visit swamiji and everyone <laughs> closed their eyes so i just went to sleep in rob's lap and then Everyone sort of opened up their eyes and was looking at me when I opened my eyes, and Swamiji was laughing and just joking. <laughs> so, yeah, I didn't know I was starting on my sadhana yet. I just knew that Swamiji had the answers that I've always been looking for. Swamiji had the questions, even, because a lot of the, the time I didn't even know what my question was. It was just, there's something, <laughs> that big something. So... Suddenly I heard Swamiji expressing the questions and giving the answers. And how long did you stay that first trip? I stayed seven years. <laughs> Which is pretty extraordinary. Yeah, because also. it's extraordinary because Canadians didn't need visas in those days. Right. So we could just stay as part of the Commonwealth. And, mm -hmm. and so I just completely dropped off the planet. Mm -hmm. I mean, my parents didn't know where I was. I was still a young girl. Mm -hmm. And... Um, Rob went, he went to Tokyo, and then he went back to Canada, and he traveled, and he went to Delhi. But I never, I never really left those first seven years. Mm -hmm. My journey definitely took a really sharp turn towards the inwards, because in those days there was no TV, there was no phones, there was no entertainment of any sort. There was barely a newspaper. It was a small village, Kulu. Mm -hmm. So there was no distractions of any kind. There was only inwards. So if you couldn't meditate and sit with Swamiji and meditate on your own being and study scripture, you had nothing. So, so what were you doing to fill the hours of the day? Th that's what I did. I meditated hours a day, between four and ten hours a day. Wow. I cooked because there was no restaurant, so we had to cook our own food on a one tiny little kerosene burner. Mm -hmm. It's just hilarious. And um, and I started learning Hindi because Swamiji had, had recommended that I learn Hindi. And he even said to me, one day you'll be teaching Hindi all over the world. And I thought, how is that possible? <laughs> but now my book is all over the world. Yeah, and I've heard you speak Hindi with locals. And yes. It's pretty impressive. You yeah. really blow people away with your perfect Hindi. Yeah, I have a good time with it. 
And so, so I meditated. I did Hindi. Uh, I studied Hindi. I uh, studied scriptures. I really liked Yogashish, and I really liked the Bhagavad Gita. So I started studying that in the original Hindi and Sanskrit. And um, I started studying Sanskrit, even. And Swamiji at one point said to me, and when you have learned Sanskrit fully, who are you planning to speak Sanskrit to? And I just looked, you know, innocently at him, and he said, because everyone who used to speak Sanskrit is now dead. He said, it's a dead language. (laughs) Nobody's talking it on the street. He goes, concentrate on your Hindi, (laughs) which was such a a relief for me, because Hindi, Sanskrit is a very hard language. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, and uh, I did yoga, lots of yoga, and uh, walked, Mm -hmm. and fed dogs. You know, there's a lot of stray dogs in India, so I fed dogs and helped dogs if they got sick and mm-hmm. hung out with the local, you know, Indian women. And in the beginning, we didn't have any com- way of communicating. We just laughed at each other. <laughs> mm-hmm. So in the years that have passed since those first first trip and meeting Swami and really embarking on this inward discovery, how has your sadhana taken shape through your life and supported you just you know sharing those 40 years or odd 40 years that have passed since then you've also been through struggle difficult times and you've been here and there you've gone back and forth so many times now how has your sadhana been the thread like what has that opening up or expansion been for you what a great question (laughs) (laughs) well i'm a curious yogi so i got a lot of questions that's a very that's a packed question (laughs) Well, it all leads to that question, because I really feel that everything in my life led to having a very stable sadhana, because if, you're a, if you look out through human eyes, you see that everything changes, and everything dies, and nothing stays, nothing is secure, on the level of form, on the level of body and form. The only thing that stays the same is your sadhana, your practice. That's the only thing that keeps you connected. And I, you're right, I've been through so many different experiences and relationships and deaths and so many difficult things. But my, uh, my strength of meditation, my, my, not my strength, my determination to always meditate, morning, afternoon, and evening, has kept me, it just kept the ship on the, the right on the water, and it hasn't sunk, even though many holes were punctured into it. It's just kept me going the whole time. And it's not that I had to do it um, or that I forced myself to do it. It's just at a certain point when you start meditating and you're doing your sadhana, it's who you become. It's like it's like breathing or it's like sleeping. You can't imagine not going to bed at night and sleeping unless you're insomniac. But normally you can't imagine not sleeping. So my sadhana now is I can't imagine not having it. I can't imagine not meditating or not, you know, studying something or reading something of, of an elevated nature or talking to people like you and getting inspired and going a little bit deeper past the, just the form level. So, yeah, it, it, it's, it's a way of life. And mm-hmm. it's a way of life that it doesn't, it doesn't stop all the rest of life from happening to you. I still had relationships and friends and travels and journeys and many, many dogs and animals and 
cows and gardens and everything, but the sadhana makes it so that you never, ever suffer from it and you never get um, fully attached to anything. Has there, has there ever been any point that you can remember in your journey of sadhana where you weren't that committed or dedicated to the daily practice or has it just like once you started I guess you had seven years to really ingrain it you know they say oh, it takes 21 days to build a new habit you had seven years yeah so well the beginning was very difficult yeah yeah I, I my mind I mean that's what I when I started excuse me when I started reading my book uh, and and presenting it and you know editing it I was amazed at how much my mind used to travel me uh, trouble me it was always bothering me because when you start meditating you start seeing how you think and a lot of times how you think is not so cool <laughs> so yeah there was many times when I thought I don't want to meditate in the beginning I don't want to meditate because I just see my mind when I meditate but I kept doing it I just kept doing it because what were my other choices mm-hmm. like not meditating also seems like not good because you do eventually, no matter how much your mind bothers you, you do eventually reach a state in meditation where you become at peace and you, you get light and you feel space. And you won't get that in anything else. You don't get that through eating or walking or dancing or singing or anything. It's only when you close your eyes and you touch the space that you get infused with love and light and knowledge. So... Even if I stopped for short periods, I was always drawn to go back because the uh, the choice of not doing it was worse. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so when we think of someone like, you know, when you first started meditating, what would you say to that person is the first first action one can take if someone has that curiosity or is maybe they don't have the chance to go to India and meet a teacher, which is such a rare thing. Well, you don't have to anymore. That's the whole beauty of the world these days. It's all out there. There's people like you doing podcasts. You know, like I wouldn't, I probably would never have gone to India if there was people like you when I was, you know, 19. Yeah. I'm, but I would say just find a person who resonates with you. Find a, find a teacher or not, not even a teacher, but find the information on how to meditate in a way that makes you feel comfortable to close your eyes. Because I do feel that you have to close your eyes. I know there's a lot of meditation in the world with open eyes, but I feel like as long as you're seeing form, you're a little bit distracted. Even if it's just an iota, but you're a little bit distracted. But if you close your eyes, you will be distracted from the inner noise of the thoughts and the lights, perhaps. Like, I always found it funny that when I meditated, I saw thoughts. Millions of them. And when Rob meditated, he saw light and colors and I thought, oh, I want to see that. <laughs> but that wasn't my path. So what I would say, I digress, is just to keep doing it, even if it's just a couple of minutes, but to just close your eyes and give that kind of momentary recognition that there is more to life than the senses and the mind and the forms and the body. Mm-hmm. That even two minutes of closing your eyes and touching and seeing and being that space that's watching is very valuable. Mm-hmm. So I don't think a person has to do hours, and I don't think a person has to go to India anymore. Rather, I would think that it's a lot of work. But to add meditation, some kind of meditation to to a person's life, I, I would strongly recommend it. Mm-hmm. 
Because, you know, not everybody thinks about death, but it's spoken of a lot in the scriptures that we do not die. The being doesn't die. Only the body dies. But if you want to get to that deathless space, if you want to have any inkling of it, if you want to understand what a deathless being is, you've got to close your eyes and touch it. And who doesn't want to be free from death? <laughs> you know? It goes down to like the most base, like primal, basic instinct is to survive and not die. And not die because we know we don't die. Mm-hmm. Actually, there's some part of every being that feels like, yeah, I, maybe everyone else will die, but I won't die. <laughs> and you won't die. And now I've, I mean, I've seen it a lot in animals here because I help a lot with sick animals and I've seen a lot of animals die. And when they leave the body when their spirit actually leaves the body i always get such a strong sense like oh there was no death there was just this there's this carcass and then there's the life and the life has gone back to the life and you can feel it mm-hmm. sometimes when some but some person or some being leaves their body mm-hmm. there is an eternal life but we're always so busy in, in in struggles with life and in making money and in eating and just taking care of the body that we don't have a moment or two to give recognition to that part of ourselves which is eternal, which is life. Which is a pretty beautiful aspect of the sadhana which you were expressing before. Like it's you know, we can start we can think it as if starts with meditation, but actually it begins to seep into everything, like the experience of you with your animals, to know that what you experience in meditation, then you begin to experience it in the waking state, just in your life you, yeah. and your relationships and how you said that, you know, you we become conscious of who we give our time to. Even when you were on the hippie trail, you had that sense, like, I'm actually not into hanging out with people that are doing drugs. I'm into hanging out with people that have deeper questions. And that, that sadhana begins to become like a living it becomes your whole life. It's no separation. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I mean, and I was very fortunate because I lived in a simpler age now than now. Like now it's harder to make money and now it's harder to travel, especially now with COVID. You know, I lived at a time where a little bit of money took you a long way and the, you didn't need visas and you didn't need, you know, it was just a simpler time and people borders were not as... as rigidly closed so I don't think a person has to make a physical journey I think a person has to just decide that they can change their direction just ever so slightly for some part of their day and just look at that inner field that is available which in fact is who they are beautiful and what has your sadhana meant to you now you are a I don't know if it's about being advanced or not, but I'd say you're an advanced sadhak. You've been really living this path. So what does your sadhana mean to you, or what does sadhana mean to you? Well, I don't... It doesn't mean anything to me anymore (laughs) because I don't think of it as a sadhana anymore. It's just my life. Mm -hmm. Like, my life is just... It's not a practice anymore. It's sort of like... It's a completion, really. Like, there isn't anything I do now where I feel like I have to try to get back to who I am. I am who I am now. (laughs) And I don't have to do, I don't have to make myself sit. When the space hits, I sit. Um, And I don't fear death the way I used to, um, or anybody would. Um, 
Yeah, I, so satna for me is just now like, like it's, it would be like asking me, like, what is your deep sleep? <laughs> how do you feel about your deep sleep? That's how it sort of feels like now. It just feels like such a part of my life after 40 years, 45 years that it, it does. I don't think of it as sadhana anymore. But I, I do try to always grow. So I don't know if that would be called sadhana. It's not so much the practices anymore as it is keeping my being open to all life around me, to new people, to people who I meet, to animals who I meet, to everything. And to keep myself open and to grow and learn from whoever I can learn from. I guess that would be my new sadhana. Because the the meditation part and the yoga part, that's just me now. Mm -hmm. Well, I would definitely say that's something for us young sadhaks to aspire to. Yeah. It's a beautiful expression. I think this is a good moment for us to hear a little excerpt from your book. If you'll delight us and grace us with reading it. I I did just want to quote you on the back of the book. It's a beautiful quote where you say, We may think we are writing the script moment to moment, but there may already be a whole story written for us. Yeah. Which is so beautiful that this even this that sentence. Yeah. It really speaks to the predestined, which is the title of the book. And, you know, there's a whole concept in Vedic philosophy where it says you are not the doer, uh, and which is so opposite from a Western thought. And... And that's what predestined is like you, it's already written. You already are being, you already are that free being. You already are the one you're seeking. So you don't have to worry so much about, you know, the actions there. It is kind of already written. You can already be at peace now with it all, which doesn't mean you should stop doing everything, (laughs) but you can be relieved thinking that you don't have to keep struggling to figure out what to do. Yeah. Great. Well, you have to keep in mind that this was written a long time ago because right. I didn't change the voice of the book, even though I I put it out just now. But um, this was written in 1977 as a journal. Um, so um, this is the part of the book where I had met Swamiji and I was going to satsang every day. And satsang means... I guess everybody knows what satsang is. Can explain satsang is a, is a meeting with people who have similar uh, desire to speak about the truth and their experiences and their inner inner experiences, mostly. And so um, satsang is actually company of truth. That's what it means. So I was going to sit with Swamiji and a bunch of people, Canadian people, in, in um, a meditation room in the Himalayas, and it was this tiny little room perched on the side of a mountain above a river. So I had been sitting there for, and in in this, uh, I was having a lot of trouble meditating, and I remembered that Swami had told us to just watch, watch the space, watch the breath, watch the thoughts, as if they were small children playing in a courtyard. Never mind them. They were just playing happily. Let the thoughts come and let them go and remain free from involvement with them. So I sat there for a long time doing this. And now this little excerpt is from when I left the meditation room. When I left the meditation room, the dramatic sky caught my attention. Living in the mountains, I got used to the unpredictability of the sky. 
Sometimes I looked out the window and decided to take a walk under the clear evening stars, but before I even reached the bottom step, I was met with a splash of rain. The clouds, sitting prettily against the mountaintops, were there one moment, and the next moment they were dumping their contents on my head. The sky blazed with a radiant morning sun, and at the other end of the valley, threatening black clouds aggressively stared back at me. Walking along, I thought that my mind was comparable to this mountain weather, changeable at any moment, stormy clouds one instant, one instant, snow and ice representing my own rigidity in thinking the next moment. Then sunlight would suddenly stream into my beings and the clouds would melt away. Mountain weather happened around us. Even if my inner sky was dark and brooding, it turned brilliantly clear and blue when I came in contact with Swamiji. Then sometimes within seconds of leaving him, my mind would again cloud up. This made me realize... I didn't need to take weather seriously. It just had to be accepted. So why did I take my thoughts and mind so seriously? Mind and weather are both just moving parts of nature. Relying on the mind is to be, to be steadfast would be like depending on mountain weather to stay the same. I would rather not be affected at all. I would rather live in heaven and not in the changeable weather, weather patterns. And then when I got home, I wrote this poem. It's called A Word in the Wind, A Direction, The Wind Blows, The Direction in the Wind, Lover and Lover, Lover and Loved, Embracing in the Air, Softly Spoken Words, A Word in the Wind, A Word to Blow Through All Words, A Tongue That Cradles the Wind, A Tongue That Lives to Breathe, To Sing About the Wind. There is language of the beginning, an illusion of the end. The world that spins the wind into whirlwinds, into windmills. The wind that caresses and strokes the air. The love, the loved, and the love affair. The wind, the word, the leaves. There is heaven within the air. There is heaven within the air. Beautiful. Wow. Thank you so much. It's such a beautiful book with poetry woven through, the beautiful illustrations. And I just know as a young person that I can relate to so much of the book. So to end, um, was there any words of wisdom that you could offer, you know, even to your younger self, if you think of Deborah Feinstein embarking on the journey in 1977, which is where, you know, we all sort of seemingly begin the spiritual path somewhere. If you could leave us with any words of wisdom for the young curious yogi. Or old. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. A yogi has no age. <laughs> um, well, they should do your yoga <laughs> to begin with. Because, look, I'm doing Bobby's yoga because it's so gentle and so spiritual and so peaceful. And so I strongly recommend that. <laughs> I know I'm not supposed to be advertising. But <laughs> <laughs> oh, thanks. But, yeah, I would just... my. I mean, my experience is just always know that you're the being that you're seeking and be free with that. And I know it sounds like a cliche, but you have to be at peace with yourself. And you have to find any way you can get back towards that peaceful state. Any way. There's so many ways. And yoga is certainly one way. And being curious is also one way. Never accept pain and never accept struggle. 
and never accept feeling small and and any of those feelings know that you're the infinite being you have incredible incredible power at your disposal if you know it's there so that's what i would say i mean because i've always been that way and a fighter for that is just know you're that being and and be at peace with that being and and never accept less don't compromise with being i mean you can't help but be sad sometimes when people die and etc but always work towards your own happiness and towards your own peace and adopt anything that will do it short of hurting other people <laughs> beautiful that's such a perfect end point i think and totally sums up the whole conversation and the whole story of you and your really inspiring, extraordinary path. So thank you. And if people want to find you or learn more about you or get the book, where can they connect with you? Chaitna.com. Yeah, that's pretty cool. <laughs> one website domain speaks to how powerful this being really is. And it's so funny because when I started writing this book, my niece who you'll probably interview at some point, Sarah, she immediately went out and got that domain, chaitna.com. And she said, one day you'll do a website. And it took a few years, but yeah, it's all there on the website. Perfect. Yeah. So we'll leave that in the show notes as well. And um, I guess we'll end with that. And thank you so much well, for Well, thank you. This time. has been so much fun. I hope I wasn't too... You're, too depressing no you're perfect <laughs> and just your radiance and your light and that happiness which you are totally shines through in your words and your wisdom and i really just appreciate it thank and you i'm sure the listeners will as well so thank you and until next time okay namaste namaste <laughs> thanks for listening to this episode of a curious yogi podcast if you enjoyed what you heard, please leave a review on iTunes. It really, really helps the show reach more people. Or share on social, and of course, follow on your favorite podcast platforms so you don't miss an episode. I appreciate the love, and I appreciate you. Let's stay curious, connected, and keep walking the yogi's path together. In oneness and delight, this is Bobby signing off until next time.